0: More and more in working with the kids at our facility and with their parents, the word trauma has come up more and more in the past few years. And certainly with some of the circumstances that we are experiencing lately lately. The word trauma is going to become more prolific and and more in everybody's scope and field of vision and hearing. An example of that is that uh, this is the day after the massacre in Las Vegas, and the news is very much filled with people who are standing there talking about their experience and people talking about what they've seen and felt and heard and getting shot themselves or watching people get shot. And doing the work that I've done for the amount of time that I've done it, a lot of these people are traumatized. So the question then comes, how do I know that? How, how can I tell that? Uh, what is it in their language? What is it in their, their body language? What is it in their eyes that's telling me, well... That person is traumatized and that one is too, but not as much. And to answer that question and answer the question that parents have of, okay, is my kid just being overdramatic or, or am I actually dealing with trauma? Did did something happen that I don't know about? Or is this the experience or this is the, is this the result of that thing that happened to my kid? I got divorced. They were uh, molested at camp. What is trauma? How do we know when our child has trauma? What are we like as parents when we're still parenting from a traumatized place, if we were traumatized as children ourselves? So to help answer this question, I brought on Sherry Simmons. Sherry Simmons is the author of Which Way? And her story around growing up with a parent who was extremely traumatized and Sherry's expertise working with teenagers who are dealing with trauma is why she's my guest. Sherry is the clinical director of Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center and my guest today on Beyond Risk and Back. Today's episode is called Drama or Trauma? This is Beyond Risk and Back. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Sherry, thank you very much for being with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we're busy over there, and we'll uh, we'll get to this information and get some support for these parents. So thank you very much.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here.
0: Let's start by talking about your experience, because uh, the story you have to tell about experiencing your parent growing up is quite fascinating. Uh, so please tell us how you got to becoming an author and a therapist.
1: Wonderful. I... Um... You know, I grew up, as you said earlier, with a uh, mother who had PTSD symptoms and uh, often dissociated, often kind of left the room emotionally because she was dealing with some very traumatic memories from her childhood. She was horribly beaten, burned, abused, caged. She was hospitalized eight or nine times by the time she was eight years old and taken by the state to live in an orphanage. She was abused at the hands of her mother and uh, various men that her mother brought into the home. The orphanage was no better. She was abused there as well for the next 10 years until she was finally uh, taken out by a family member at the age of 17. So uh, she repressed a lot of her memories of this throughout her adulthood. And as a young child, I walked into the kitchen one day, she turned around, Looked at me, and she didn't see her daughter. She saw, she saw her mother, the face of her mother, and it was that moment that all of the memories started coming back. She had experienced snippets throughout her adulthood, but never anything that she could really make sense of. So she started a 10-year journey in therapy to uh, make sense of the trauma that she experienced. And so as I grew up, I became fascinated with the concept of trauma and began studying it and researching it and working with kids in residential facilities who had significant trauma. And I became fascinated with the way that our minds are equipped to deal with trauma and just how resilient we are as a human race.
0: Just how big does an event have to be in a person's life to create trauma and for a person to be able to begin to experience PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder
1: That's relative and it's specific to the person that experiences it I'd like to I'd like to challenge everybody and say that we are all traumatized on some level now that could be something that we, a horrific event that we went through ourselves. It could be hearing stories from someone we work with or someone that we care about regarding their trauma. It could be something as Small or insignificant as opening your social media page turning on the news and seeing scenes from The latest tragedy. I mean you mentioned earlier the massacre that just occurred in in Las Vegas Perfect example of how America has turned on their TV screens witnessed this tragedy people crying people who have lost loved ones That is tr- That is trauma you know Aaron to the brain Trauma can't distinguish, the brain can't, sorry, the brain can't extinguish, distinguish between whether someone has experienced trauma themselves or heard about it or seen it. To the brain, trauma is trauma.
0: So a few years ago I was scrolling through my Facebook feed, my social media feed, and I came across a woman preparing a dog to eat at that dog eating festival in Asia. And the image that I saw, this was before Facebook was putting up, you know, screens that says, "Hey, this video is is very graphic. Don't watch it. You know, don't click if you don't want to watch it." It would automatically start playing. And to this day there's a There's a device used to help you get rid of weeds that I can't handle and it's in our garage here at the facility. When I think about it, it keeps me up. I cry. I lose sleep. There are times that I get shaky and I'm assuming based on what I know and based on what you said that that's post-traumatic stress disorder.
1: Absolutely. I mean, like I said, the brain can't distinguish between the different. So just in seeing something, you can be triggered by um, a memory of what you saw on social media, um, a, a device that reminds you of what you saw, somebody talking about what you saw. And yeah, y- even though you weren't there to see the actual event, you can experience PTSD
0: so the concept of triggers, and, and that's what I'm talking about, is that when I see this thing, this item in our garage, I immediately remember the video and then have the body sensations. And that's that's what we'd call a trigger. And the way I like to explain it to parents and to the kids at our facility is that imagine you're abused by a person wearing a red shirt, a man wearing a red shirt, and he abuses you horrendously. What would it be like to go to Target? and we use it we call it the red shirt because that's an example of how someone has to begin to resolve triggers the you might have to go to target to get your stuff for school so at some point your brain has to be able to say that red shirt was dangerous but these aren't these are people that are trying to help me buy a microwave from my dorm room or something like that like how do you begin that process of taking that wound and disengaging all the junk that comes behind being traumatized
1: you know there's an interesting thing that happens when when we're triggered and let me just say triggers can be positive too you can walk into the cracker barrel and smell bacon and be reminded of a fun camping trip you had when you were you know 10 or whatever but when we're triggered in a negative way we automatically go to our limbic system. And if if you break down the brain into three very simple parts, you've got your prefrontal lobe right up there by where your forehead is. Prefrontal lobe isn't fully developed until we're about 25 years of age. The prefrontal lobe has a filtering system and you filter in information and data and things that you've learned and you can, you know, analyze things and do a plan and a pro-con list and those kinds of things in your prefrontal lobe. Your cerebrum is the middle part of your brain and it's responsible for language and thoughts. The very back of your brain is called the limbic system. The limbic system you're born with, it's completely intact, it's already developed, and there is no filtering system. So the limbic system believes everything that it sees or hears. If you grow up and you hear that you are dumb, fat, not worth anything, not lovable, the limbic system is going to believe that. So when we're triggered, the limbic system becomes activated. And the limbic system is about, am I in fear or danger? When we're negatively triggered, we automatically think we're in danger. And so the limbic system has reactions that it puts in place for us to deal with the fear. Limbic system is all about safety. When we are feeling safe, we can get to our prefrontal lobe and think through our decisions. When we don't feel safe and we think we're in danger, we live in our limbic system. And it's about fighting, flighting, fleeing, fainting, freezing, all all of those reactions that we put in place for ourselves to get us out of danger. And to make us feel safe again.
0: So I've heard, I've heard people describe the limbic system as the lizard brain or the reptilian brain. That's what you're talking about.
1: That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's the very primitive part of our brain.
0: Okay. So now we've got, we've got a, we've got a teenager, and they start acting out, and we think it might be trauma. What are the things that I would be seeing as a parent that should make me go, uh oh, is this? Is this the result of a traumatic experience? What is fight, flight, f- freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed? These things that a lizard do, these survival things, the six, the six Fs of survival, they're, they're still a relatively broad term. Tell me some of the things that I would notice my child doing or begin to notice in myself that would be the result of having PTSD. What are, what are the signs I'm looking for as a parent to wonder why my kid is acting like this?
1: Well, let's break it down a little bit. I mean, fighting looks like um, there's a tense, awkward situation or, or a situation where someone's being triggered and they go into fight mode and they might hurl insults. They might they might get angry and start yelling. They might get real defensive or they might flee. They might say, I'm out of here. I'm done. I don't want to have this discussion. I'm out. And they leave leave the house. They might freeze where they just simply shut down. And you think they're ignoring you, but in actuality, they're, they're frozen. They're, they're frozen in their limbic brain. They can't get to the prefrontal lobe so that they can actually access their, their language and their thoughts. Fornicating That can look like someone being promiscuous or or very sexualized behavior, uh, porn addiction, those kinds of things. Feeding can look like numerous things, somebody overeating, somebody cutting, somebody being addicted to running away, somebody being addicted to working out, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. I mean, all of that is considered a feeding frenzy. And where the limbic brain goes sometimes when it's scared,
0: I have a really good example of the fainting. We had a kid long ago who was an orphan from Russia. And when we had got him, he had been homeless, living away from home in Canada. So he'd been living on the streets for about six months. We got him with the assistance of a social worker up in Canada. And the parents put him into the program. And he was a very sweet young boy. And when we would give him corrective action, so for example, because he was dealing with reactive attachment disorder, one of his symptoms was is that he would steal things. And he would you know, not just hoard food and steal things that he thought he would need to survive. He would steal things like the mail so that he could start a fire in case we kicked him out. So he had, he had severe reactive attachment disorder. So we'd bring him downstairs and we'd be like, hey dude, please don't take our mail because some of those things are bills. And if we don't pay our bills on time, we won't be able to keep the lights on and keep the heat on and stuff like that. Okay, so we'd really appreciate it. I'm happy to give you any of the junk mail if that makes you feel more safe, but we need to go through the mail before you get your hands on it. Is that okay? And he would nod yes. And then he would go to sleep and this kid would sleep for a good 13, 15 hours, and he would not be able to function fully or be totally back online until he went through that sleeping process. It was literally his survival tactic to when he felt intensity, and even if we were talking to him in just this tone of voice, he would go to sleep for 15 hours. That caused a lot of problems, but then if you scolded him for that, he'd go back to sleep. It was amazing. This kid slept more than I've ever seen any child sleep.
1: Perfect example of what fainting can look like. I've experienced similar clients over the years. One minute aggressive, throwing tables and chairs the next, heading to bed for, for the next 18 hours. It really truly is beautiful what the mind can do to protect itself. The problem is sometimes those coping skills, I and mean, really when you break it down, Flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. They're all coping skills. The problem is they they begin to no longer work for people. And that's what usually drives parents to calling places like Fire Mountain. It it drives adults to to get into individual therapy so that they can figure out a different way to cope with their lives and and feel safe.
0: Is it fair to say that post-traumatic stress disorder comes from feeling that your life is in danger or having an experience that makes you think that your life is in danger, and that going into survival, going into limbic brain happens because something is reminding you that you were once in danger and that you are not safe.
1: Yeah, there's different levels of PTSD. I mean, a formal diagnosis of PTSD tends to include criteria such as, you know, having experienced prolonged and chronic stress symptoms that are ongoing and enable somebody from functioning in their life. There's lesser degrees of PTSD, such as what you talked about earlier, where, you know, you saw something on television that was disturbing to you. And when you see something that reminds you of it, you're triggered. So it, you know, in terms of ability to function in life, that can vary from person to person. You and I may see the very same thing and you react just fine to it. And I start to have nightmares and I'm afraid to leave my house. So the reactions to what we see and hear and experience is varied. But yeah, I mean, PTSD symptoms can look like uh, trouble sleeping, uh, inability to eat, reactions like we just talked about, the fight, flight, freeze. In the brain, there's two mechanisms that are very important when it comes to PTSD. We've got the amygdala, and that holds all of our emotions, terror, joy, peace, content, all of that. Right next to it is a little organism called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is, is what puts a timeline to our emotions. So if I go to an amusement park and I see kids on a roller coaster and they're squealing and they're laughing and they're happy, you know, you can tell they're happy, I might have a memory of when I did that as a child. And so my amygdala says, oh, I felt happy like that when I was five and went on a roller coaster." The hippocampus says, yep, that's when you were five. If you are experiencing PTSD and say you just came back from war or you were on the front lines and you go to an amusement park and you hear a balloon pop and it sounds like a gunshot to you, if you've got PTSD symptoms, you're hitting the ground because you think that it's gunfire and you're under attack. The hippocampus is saying, this didn't happen six months ago. This is happening now. So the work of anyone who experiences PTSD is to get the hippocampus, the timeline, to match up with the amygdala, the emotions. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does. The the timeline the timeline work seems pretty significant. It also seems worth mentioning that you talked about a balloon popping and hitting the ground. There's a lot of versions of that. A balloon pops and your heart rate suddenly increases. A balloon pops and you jerk around, surprised, scared. I heard, how is it described? It was described that sleeping in a new place is not the problem. It's the new sounds that are the problem, that you're not going to sleep well in a new environment, whether it's a hotel or an Airbnb because you're on vacation or because you've moved until your body recognizes all those sounds as non-threatening. So the hitting the ground is another, in my, I'm thinking is another way of saying if your child was adopted and and I have to tell parents out there, listen to the episode on adoption trauma because adoption does a massive a massive amount of it creates a massive amount of trauma in a child for very uncontrollable reasons and Just the very simple act of being in a conversation with with someone who was adopted and saying, all right, I'm leaving, and whether that was a good, hey, we had a great time, and all right, I got to go, bye, versus I got to go, I'll be back soon, let's talk to each other later, and we'll connect. And then leaving can be massive, that just saying, I got to go, bye, and walking out the door abruptly on a person with adoption trauma can raise their heart rate, can put them into their limbic system, because again, the hippocampus isn't saying, okay. That happened a long, long time ago before you were five. These people who've adopted you are really nice people and they love you a lot. In the same sense that that guy who hurt you hurt you a long time ago. He's not here now. This guy actually likes you and he seems like a really nice guy. And I don't have to be afraid of this relationship. That This hitting the ground. I I love that concept. A balloon pops, you think it's gunfire and you hit the ground. There are so many different ways... That that reaction that says, we're in trouble, we're in danger, your life is in danger, fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed, do something to make yourself not feel like you're in danger. Eat food, then you know you'll survive. Something. And it really can happen at a lot of different levels.
1: Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the things that I, I talk to parents about is to begin to recognize what your child's physical cues are, because we all have them and they all look different. We all get triggered. OK, um, we see something that's disturbing, reminds us of something from our past or, you know, it's something that we don't like to see. It triggers us. And the next thing that happens is a physical cue. For some people, that's elevated heart rate. For others, it's they turn red and blotchy. For others, it's they start to clench their jaws or clench their fists. Others, it's a racing heart. I mean, to begin to to develop an awareness around what that is for you, Bottom line, we'll we'll always, and as human beings, be triggered by things. Our physical cues will probably always look the same because it's how we're wired as a human being. What happens next, though, is crucial. And for people that are triggered and in their limbic brain, it's about providing safety. Okay? I don't know how many of you have heard people say when you are stressed and going through something very, very difficult, say something like, well, go to your happy place. Well, how about you count to 10? Well, let's make a plan. Tell me what happened. Those are all prefrontal lobe functions. And what people really need when they're in their limbic system is to feel safe. When they feel safe, then they can start to access their language and their thoughts again. You know, I I do a presentation on trauma and I often talk about babies and how we relate to babies. When babies are stressed and under duress, They cry, they scream, they show us, right? They let us know that they're upset. And how do we react to babies? We have a, we lower our, our tone. We have a cadence to our voice. We pull our body inward. We say things like, shh, I got you, you're safe, it's okay. We'll figure this thing out. I got you, I'm here. We say those kinds of reassuring things to calm a baby down. And I wonder why we don't do that with the teens or the adults in our lives who are equally under distress and need to feel safe again.
0: There are two things that come up when you talk about this. Number one, let's say that you know, despite all your efforts, something bad has happened to your child and they really don't feel safe in this world. Perfect example is my wife has a a very dear friend who's a doctor whose husband died suddenly while exercising is an extremely rare disease that exercise actually builds up fat in the heart. He was very athletic, very on all outward appearances, healthy. And then one day while riding his bike, he dropped dead and she had two very young children and that's not something that you know that's a, that's a, a symptom of circumstance that people are victimized by and her children were victimized by it it must be hard to create a safe environment for somebody who's been traumatized, especially A, when you may not be able to relate to it, and B, when there's other people in the household who don't necessarily need that environment. What's some advice for that?
1: The advice I have is to begin to develop some awareness around what your child is is triggered by, or what your significant other is triggered by, what their physical cues look like, and maybe front load a discussion with them about what they might need in those moments. You know, for a lot of parents, it's giving their child some space, some space to calm down, just letting them know that they're here. You know, sometimes it's knocking on the bedroom door and saying, hey, I'm I'm here when you're ready to talk. You know, you might get a, a slam door, you might get a nephew, you might get some sort of tirade, but it's again, checking back in every few minutes. Hey, I'm here. I'm here when you're ready, when you're ready to talk. I, I get it. You need some space. And, and that's hard to do in the moment, especially if somebody is reacting in a real aggressive way. Providing that safety is key. Um, they will not be able to access their thoughts and their, and their language that they couldn't do it even if they wanted to because the blood is not flowing to that part of the brain. The blood is flowing to their extremities so that they can fight, fight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed, all of those. It really is about finding out the ways to provide safety for the person in your life. And again, some of those front-loaded discussions can be real helpful.
0: I think the other challenge that comes up is that, and you said it at the beginning of our conversation, so many of us are walking wounded. So many of us have trauma. There's a lot of us. And you and I both work with a lot of people who've gone through trauma in their life, who've done a lot of work to be able to live with it, to to work through it, to overcome it. And working with kids who don't have that those skills re-triggers. And you and I are constantly coaching people. I was coaching a parent who wanted to bring her child to Fire Mountain this morning. And this woman was utterly traumatized by what her child is doing. And this woman has not dealt with her own trauma from her own life. And she gave me an earful about her past. And so the conversation went from being about how she can help her son to she has to help herself first before any of this is going to make any bit of good or any difference. And that's a big piece is that there are those of us who have not dealt with our own traumas yet. And now we got a kid who's been traumatized and they're screaming F you through the door at us and that's triggering us. And now we've got a trigger triggering a trigger, triggering a trigger, triggering a trigger, and it's a horrendous cycle as a parent.
1: Absolutely, Aaron. I mean, I think back to my own experiences with my with my child growing up. And there were times when I did not keep myself As regulated as I should have and so here he was in his limbic brain I was in my limbic brain we were going back and forth and getting nowhere and no one was feeling safe and for me became about learning how to recognize when he's in his limbic brain and learning how to regulate myself. And sometimes that looks like me stepping away. Sometimes it looks like taking some deep breaths. Sometimes it looks like some sort of self-care so that I can regulate my emotions and have a conversation that happens in my, in the language part of my brain instead of the limbic part of my brain.
0: It harkens back to the tagline that I end every show with, you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationship second, you take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work. And this is exactly what I'm talking about, that until we deal with our own stuff, our own traumas, there's really not much we can do for others except trigger. And when we start to deal with our own traumas, our nervous system gets regulated in survival mode, we're talking about an unregulated nervous system. We're not talking about – you said something that is that is fascinating to think about, that the blood – when we when, when a kid is in their limbic system and they are completely in survival mode and we're saying things like, you're not listening to me, or you need to get this through your head that this isn't working, your father and I love you, your mother and I have worked our butts off, blah, blah, blah they're literally not getting blood to the part of the brain that can hear those words. You might as well be talking about boiled cabbage. They're in survival mode, which means all they're capable of doing is fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, and feed. And it's hard to remember when we're feeling triggered, when we're feeling our own trauma emerge because of what our kids are doing. And then we're trying to talk sense into our kids who are not capable. It's not that they're not willing. They're not capable of hearing it. This is big stuff, Sherry. And I want to continue this conversation at a later date. I think this is a lot for parents to but I want you to talk about your book that's coming out now. Which way? Talk about the book and how it's going to be able to help parents and or clinicians to work with trauma.
1: The book is a combination of my mother's memoir and story about her childhood. I talk about that from two different perspectives. One, as a young child growing up and and watching her and her struggle with PTSD, And then also from the lens of a clinician who's had 28 years of experience dealing with and working with clients who have been traumatized. So I hope to give the reader a little bit more of an understanding about what's happening in the brain when we're triggered and when we're experiencing painful memories from our past. Bottom line, Erin, you know, you and I have talked about this before, the strongest central nervous system wins. And if the strongest central nervous system in the room is one that's triggered and fighting, fighting, fleeing, fornicating, or feeding, then that's, then that's how other people in our lives will follow. Your children will regulate to the point that you're regulated. And so this book talks about ways in which to, to do that and, and begin the healing process in your own life so that you can be more regulated for the people you love.
0: You told me earlier, you have a talk coming up here pretty soon. If someone wants to get a hold of you and have you come talk to their group or their company, where do they find you? Where do they get in touch with you?
1: An email. I've got a website, SherrySimmons.com can be reached by email, uh, SherrySimmons.com. Speaks at gmail.com, and that's S H A R I S I M M O N S. Those are great ways to to reach me. I can be reached by phone as well. Number 970 402. Six, five, three,
0: six. Perfect. Okay, Sherry, we're going to have another conversation around this. But like I said, this is a lot for a parent to, uh, to hear, uh, to swallow, to deal with. And I can imagine a teacher nowadays who's got a classroom full of kids, especially a teacher who's working with inner city kids or in a more urban district that has a lot of trauma, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, poverty in their community. We know these things cause trauma. So I want to be able to provide as much support to parents and teachers and clinicians about trauma. So thank you, Sherry. Thank you for the time. I know you've got a very busy schedule, so let's get you off and back to work. Folks, remember, as always. You take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationships second. And you take care of your children third. In this way, we do our best work with our kids. I want to thank you for joining me on Beyond Risk and Back. I want to give thanks to all the people at Mental Health News Radio and all the hard work they do to bring as much support as possible to people in the communities who have the sense to listen to good podcasts. And until next time, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.